All right. I am Brandon Mercer. And I am Joshua Stein. Today is Thursday, February 25th, 2016, and this is episode 15 of Garbage. All right, guys. Um, you're pretty familiar with the format now. Um, in this week's episode, we're going to talk about some OpenBSD updates. Uh, there's things going around, uh, going on now around uh, the lock cycle, and uh, and then we have some other miscellaneous things in the news that um, are going to be fun to poke fun at and uh, call people out on silly mistakes and oversights. So let's get started. All right. So uh, I guess the big news in OpenBSD is that 5.9 has been tagged and branched, and the trees are um, thawing, I guess you could say. Yep, we're in that um, that post-release phase right now where no new files, no new directories, and no deleting of files can happen. But uh, the commits are happening, and then eventually the uh, new big things will start to go in. Yeah, that's right. And um, one of the other cool things that's happening right now is uh, we actually have a couple new developers who showed up over the past few days. Yeah, some uh, fresh blood. Yeah, actually, I'm I'm kind of excited about both of them. Um, Adam Wolk, who works on uh, the games and the ports tree, um, I've chatted with him on IRC for a while, and I think he's a really cool guy, and we have a lot of shared interests, and um, I really enjoy being around him, and um, it it's just a pleasure to work with him. So he's uh, been uh, welcomed into our community, and um, the other gentleman is uh, Martin. Matt uh, Nantino, and he was um, welcomed to the team recently as well. And he is—he's uh, been working on a lot of stuff um, in Bitrig. And I guess uh, you know now that Bitrig is kind of dead, um, he is coming to the OpenBSD project and uh, working with us now, which is good because I think uh, he's going to make a good contribution. Yeah. So are the rumors true that? Uh... BSD is dead because Bitrig is dead. Yeah, I think uh, BSD is still dying. Um, I, I saw Jason Dixon's talk in 2009, <laughs> and I think it was the second time he'd given it that BSD is dying, and so it's still dying. Um, we're just waiting for the next thing to come along that is going to replace it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think Bitrig lost all its steam and. Um, I think I, I don't know too much about it, but I think the people who were behind it um, have kind of lost sight or um, moved on to other things now. So they aren't, you know, it's not needed anymore. So mm-hmm. I think all the last developers who were still working in that tree have, um, the last couple have been working on OpenBSD and sending patches to tech. So that's a good thing because I like some of the people who were working on Bitrig. Yeah. Um. Some other OpenBSD news. Uh, Spark looks like it will have packages for 5.9. Uh, I think we talked about it before. We weren't sure if it was going to be uh, if it was going to make the release or not. Yep. But I think uh, one of the developers stepped up and built all the packages. Yeah, um, I think uh, I saw some communication today with Peter Hessler uh, talking about the Spark boxes, and I know that. There are some hardware pieces that are failing, but uh, he is working diligently, and I'm sure others are as well, to get the release and the packages built for Spark. So maybe it's the last one, maybe not, we don't know, but there will be a 5.9 with Spark. Yeah. Cool. So what else is going on? 
Um, not really a whole lot. Um, I saw there's been um, a bunch of updates still to the FAQ. Um, there's been a bunch of improvements, deleting things that um, aren't really so frequently asked, um, getting rid of things that maybe aren't necessarily relevant or true anymore. Um, so it's that you know thing that we love so much of pruning away old stuff that doesn't need to be there anymore. Yeah. And uh, and I guess um, you know moving some of the FAQ to point to actual documentation where it where it's uh where it actually lives like the boot blocks and how those work and how those really should work instead of them living in the FAQ and release notes they just live in the release notes now stuff like that so yeah um i have a request for the FAQ which i guess is not an FAQ since no one else is asking for it but um <laughs> I just was like doing some uh, some Googling to try and find the answer, and it seems like every answer out there is outdated. But mm -hmm. I want to know how to get a VPN working from OpenBSD to iOS, like on the native level, so like you can set up an like a VPN profile in iOS and have it talk to your OpenBSD router or whatever, and just mm -hmm. have it all working in the background without using like um, some weird like VPN client, like OpenVPN or something like that. And it seems like every solution that I found out there um, is like outdated and talks about like old versions of iOS that did things differently or old versions of like um, IPsec on OpenBSD that did things differently. Mm -hmm. And I guess in iOS 9, there's like some new um, better cryptography that you can enable like optionally. So if anybody has done that, uh, right into us and tell me how you did it. Yeah, that'd be cool to know. I, I know that um, IPsec in general causes a lot of people a lot of grief. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I don't know, probably 12 years ago, I was setting up um, IPsec stuff between Cisco and OpenBSD, and it was it, it asked for a lot from me at the time. And, um, you know, OpenBSD to OpenBSD, no problem. Cisco to Cisco, no problem. But there were a bunch of things that were hard to make, um, talk IPsec back and forth. You know, even just IPsec itself is hard to get right. But um, it seems like the compatibility between implementations was really tough for a time. And it's gotten better now. And thankfully, I've gotten out of that kind of stuff. So <laughs> Yeah, I actually just found a, uh article on OpenBSD Journal from 2003 talking about the... Uh documentation that I wrote on my website about replacing WEP with IPsec mm -hmm. um, back in the day when we didn't have WPA and OpenBSD uh, and WEP was crappy. So I just made it like clear text and then uh, did IPsec between the OpenBSD machines on my LAN. Mm -hmm. And it was apparently complicated enough that I had to write up a whole document about how to do it. <laughs> That's awesome. But, I think um, along those lines, I think when I was doing that, I was doing um, like SSH tunneling. Mm -hmm. I left my wireless open. Like you could get an address from it, but you couldn't pass any traffic through there. And I used AuthPF and I would SSH to, into the machine and you would um, it would open up some rules for your particular client. And uh, then you could pass traffic through there. And then I guess it kind of solved the, um, you know, encryption for the wireless traffic as well as making sure people weren't jumping on my wireless and doing things without me authorizing them to. Yeah. Isn't it funny? Uh, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but 
um, every once in a while I'll search for something. I'm like, how on earth do you do this? And then I'll find an article that I wrote. <laughs> yep, I have done that many times. <laughs> I hate that. Yeah. Oh, and I mean, it's it's one thing like if you've done it before and you just forgot how you did it, but it's mm-hmm. another thing if you author an article about it and then you go back to it and <laughs> Google reminds you of yep. what you've written. That's the worst. Yeah. So do you have like a, a big list of things to commit now that the tree is unlocked that you were waiting I, for? No, I don't. I actually have a couple things that I have worked on though. Um, uh, Patrick was working on the arm stuff and that kind of got me like looking at my tree and I have uh, that little Odroid XU4 board and um, one of the things that I worked on was like setting up a hardware profile for that to work and um, I don't have any documentation on the chip which kind of stinks but um, I did get it from not doing anything to like having a broken serial console and then Patrick had a diff that um, uh, defined what was it the um, one of the modes that the CPU was in was in like hypervisor mode or virtualization mode mm-hmm. and so we didn't know how to handle that particular mode and so he added the, the define so we would know what to do with that and the code that does handle that appropriately so it should get a little further so maybe I'll um, update some of that stuff but as I said the the board is nice but I don't have docs so it it's kind of I don't know how far I would go anyway, so I might be wasting my time. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the other thing that I was working on, I did actually work on um, this USB to Ethernet adapter that I have. And I picked the most difficult thing I could find in the store to make work um, one day. And it was a USB 3. And it was gigabit. So it was bound to present a challenge. <laughs> and it attaches to our, I want to say, Axen driver. Okay. Maybe, maybe that's right. And uh, but anyway, after a while, it it just the PHY on it goes away, and it says it's not available. It's not available. So I started to work on debugging that a little bit. And um, honestly, I I uh, got distracted from it pretty quickly. I was working on some other fun things, but um, yeah, I mean, I've I've made little improvements to it, and nothing commit worthy yet. I don't think, but I guess. Nobody else really uses this driver because I don't think it's too stable. I mean, like, it's usable for, like, two minutes at a time. So yeah. I'm either the only one using it, uh, so I'm not going to break anything, or this hardware is a lot different than the rest of the hardware that uses it. Uh, yeah, I have a couple USB 3 uh, Ethernet devices, and they just work fine. But they attach nice. as uh, CDCE, which is, like, the generic uh, driver, I guess. Yeah. I am uh, making very slow progress on porting Ath10K from Linux to our kernel. <laughs> oh, nice. Which is um, a lot of code, but it's dual licensed, so I can just like literally make it compile and not have to like, you know, write an entirely new driver. Nice. But it is um, 51 files. Wow. Yeah. It's, uh, let me just uh, see how much code it is. megabytes. Yeesh. All right. So for for comparison, now this is a wireless driver, and some wireless drivers, you know, 2,500 lines would be a minimal thing, right? Uh, But to give folks a comparison here, like a lot of network drivers, they'll range from, I don't know, what what would you say? A a big one is 10,000 lines, maybe two or three files. Yeah. 
I mean, so the way Linux does things is much, much different than the way we do things, and they put stuff in as many places as they possibly can, and it makes it like completely horrific to try and pull things back into our kernel yeah. and use. The F10K driver from with all of the files is 48,000 lines. Um, but a lot of it is, you know, obviously just like um, weird specific stuff to the hardware that doesn't ever, doesn't really interface with Linux. We have a file in our tree already for the uh, the Intel DRM code that we mm -hmm. that was ported from Linux, and there's like one uh, include file in there that basically like defines a whole bunch of things that Linux does that we have equivalents for. Mm -hmm. So I was able to take a lot of that work and get a lot of th of things to compile, just like small things like Linux has um, U8 for like an unsigned 8-bit um, uh, integer, mm -hmm. whereas we would do like int 8t or something like that. So yep. basically this include file like just gets a lot of things compiling, but obviously there's still uh, a ton of more work to do. <laughs> so no, uh, no promises on when any of this will a ever compile and be ever be usable and imported but that's the network uh the wireless chip on my samsung laptop so i figured i'd see uh, what i can do about it yeah a lot of those atheros chips are really difficult to get working and um may or may not work but that also that one uh correct me if i'm wrong supports host ap mode as well uh i think so yeah so you have a lot more uh, bits to handle than just a normal yeah. wireless driver, and it you know it does a lot more stuff in software than a lot of other wireless chips. So there's just a ton more code to uh, do stuff. Yeah. Well, um, kind of related to OpenBSD, but um, BSD Canada, BSD Can. Um, I was kind of looking around to see if I could find um, the speakers. I, they were supposed to be announced on the 24th, so that would have been yesterday. Um, and I still didn't see any updates. Um, no speakers have been confirmed or announced yet, as far as I can tell. But um, you can register to go there. Um, their registration is up um, for, I guess, the conference is in Ottawa, Canada. And the date of that, the BSD CAN 2016. Oops. I should have pulled this up. <clears throat> you'll you'll be able to see Groff the Groff the Guff. Is that who that is? What? It's a, yeah. There's some there's some goat that goes to all the BSD conferences and he travels around the world. Hmm. Um, so like they'll say like, hey, who's headed to this conference? And they'll say, I am. And you take the goat with you. So Groff is the name of the but anyway um yeah bsd can 2016 is going to be held on um the 10th and 11th of june so that's a friday and a saturday and it's going to be at the university of ottawa um so yeah if you guys want to go see a conference i know that there's a lot of good um talks that have been proposed like i said we don't know what the list is yet but uh, it's a lot of fun to socialize that's one of the bigger conferences i think bsd can is like you know the premier uh, North America conference and then the Euro BSD con is kind of like the premier um, European conference mm -hmm. good good way to meet people and hang out and uh, really just uh, it's a lot of fun to do that kind of thing I enjoy that so I assume that you are uh, you're going I don't know um, 
I'd like to make uh, plans for it. We'll see kind of how the um, how personal life uh, makes room for this this year. <laughs> yeah. Actually, um, maybe this is a, a, a segue. I, I've been wanting to talk about this for a long time, but I think it's kind of a neat phenomena. Um, like we work in technology where everything is kind of like, here's your parameters that you have to work in. And so if here's your parameters and I give you the certain input, this is what I expect to see at the other side. And, and, and I find it fascinating. Like there's so many other factors that, um, play into how technology is built and what comes out the other side. And, um, it, it's fascinating to me, the human elements of it and the, um, maybe not as fascinating, but it's, um, interesting nonetheless, the, uh, social and political aspects of things, um, how they weigh into projects and how they weigh into how things are done and their impacts on technology as a whole. And I've been seeing that a lot lately with, you know, license conflicts and, um, you know, the, like ZFS, ZFS is list, is licensed with the CDDL and, you know, I've heard Brian say in various things that he wished it wasn't licensed that way so that, you know, the BSDs could use it and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But all those things kind of like they go into um, a product or a project and they wind up having some sort of impact on it. And some of it's good and some of it's bad. And, you know, we've been talking a little bit before about the culture and the community around OpenBSD and, you know, the things that people say, well, I, I was – you know, I was talking about this and they said, well, we can't use OpenBSD because of the hostile community and this and that and the other thing. And and I find that a little bit unfortunate, but I also think that that's a very real thing in how all these uh, projects work. And there's sharp edges no matter where you go. Uh, it's either a rough community or it's bad code or it's, you know, there's like compromises and sacrifices each way you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's just kind of interesting. And you know, I want to talk maybe a little bit about the human element too, because, you know, like I go into work some days and some days like to quote, there's a movie, um, what is it called? Proof. And the guy, he, he does these math proofs and, um, he tells his daughter, he's like, the machinery is working. And I, I kind of feel like that some days when I'm writing code, um, I feel, you know, like I can just go in there, I can focus on a problem. I can quickly troubleshoot and diagnose it. I can write a lot of code all day long and just no problems. And then there are, there will be days at a time when I go into work and no matter how hard I try, I can't produce anything. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that's one of those things that I think maybe is like misunderstood. Like people just think like you're a developer, you just write code. This is just what you do. And for me at least, um, I know that there are ebbs and flows in troubleshooting. There are ebbs and flows in code production. There are ebbs and flows in um, motivation maybe. And maybe that's another thing. Um, so it's kind of an interesting thing to talk about and kind of an interesting thing to observe, um, like in, in real life and work, you know, I go in there and I say, here's your, here's your parameters. Here's what I need from this. And then, you know, the things that come out the other side take Mm -hmm. a lot of management and coercion and, uh, input and feedback and all that stuff to get right. So, I think it's a very interesting thing to to think about the human aspect of software development. Yeah. I think maybe it depends on your work environment or your, um, how big your company is or whether you're like a junior or senior software developer. Um, but I think there are like certain positions where 
maybe it's just my reaction to the term, but like when people call themselves a coder, like that's their job title or whatever, they're just a coder. Um, to me that like that conjures up an image of somebody just handing them a whole bunch of specifications and saying, we need you to do the physical task of translating these English, uh, specifications into you know whatever computer language you're programming in there's yeah. no creativity there's no you know problem solving it's basically just translating from one language to another and that's your job so that's i guess what i think of when someone says that they are just like a coder but then when you have like a software developer or um if you want to use the term software engineer like you have to engineer the solution like you have mm-hmm. like a, a more a vague problem maybe and without too many specifications and it's basically up to you to solve the problem in however you see fit and however your experience tells you would be the best way to do it and how your skill um you know like how quickly you can get it done or how uh you know performant the code is that you write so i don't know i guess uh i feel like that type of position is is a much more creative uh yeah. task than just translating things from one language to another. Yeah, definitely. And and to that point, um, I've been in places where people are like, hey, we need a function that takes in this hash and, uh, you know, stores it to the database, mm-hmm. you know, and and I've and where I'm at now and where I seem to do the best in is where people are like, hey, we need to come up with a way to do this better. Right. <laughs> and so I talk to people, well, what does it need to do and where does this come from and um, how often a day do you do this and what do you look at when you do do this and all this kind of stuff. And that's where I like to be. Um, but I, I know that they're very, very, very different things. And I know that some people, um, you know, they like that corporate environment where they're given a strict specification and they're set, they're given, you know, parameters to implement in a function in Java. And then they do that and they love that. And that's, they will do that for 20 years. Yeah. Um, and I know that, you know, there's other people who just can't stand that, who absolutely, hate that and they want to figure out how everything works and they want to understand each detail to an entire application as much as they can down to the hardware and I think that that I think both of them are necessary um, I think they are completely different and I've seen people fill each role but you're right it's it's a really really different um, person I think that does each of those types of software implementation I guess we'll call it yeah, I mean, when I was at my old job, um, I had things like you said, somebody would come to me and say, hey, we need this this written. And I my first reaction would be like, well, why? Like, what is what are you actually trying to do? Because the way that, or like the thing that you think you need is probably not the best way to do it. Or I guess maybe just possibly could not be the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like my position now where I'm self-employed and I have to do everything from, uh, you know, writing terrible JavaScript code on a website to like doing the kernel development on the server that that stuff runs on. Um, and I have to do like everything in between. So my, I mean, I guess it comes down to like priorities maybe, um, like an outsider could look at the code that I write and say like, Oh, that's a poor way to do it. Or that's a bad, you know, you should have used this software package or you should have engineered it this way. Um, but my reaction would be like, well, you know, I don't have the time to do all that. I'm mm-hmm. one guy trying to do all of this from A to Z. Um, there were much more important things to um, to take into consideration or, I don't know. 
I don't know where I'm really going with that, but I guess it's just, it, you know, it all depends and it's like a, it's a scale basically like, or a spectrum of, uh, your job responsibilities, your experience, um, the kind of product that you're making, like all that stuff comes into play and, uh, into, uh, how you write code. Yeah, for sure. And on the other side of that spectrum is those people who do focus on that one little thing there, that's a, that's a two edged sword as well, because those people will focus on that minute detail and say, you know, Joshua, here's the way you really want to do this. This is a much better way to do this, and here's why. And you say, okay, but this guy has spent, you know, you know, f- four weeks or six weeks, uh, you know, s- specifically focusing on this problem, but their solutions lack the big picture. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, their their scope is very finite and very limited, which is good for that problem. But then you also need the people who see the bigger picture to come together and work together. So, yeah, I I think it's an, an interesting part of software development that makes me kind of um, appreciate all the detail-oriented oriented people, all the big thinker people, and how they come together. And um, I'm not trying to make a poor segue into something, but here, here's kind of why I think this is interesting. Um, there was um, another compression library. <laughs> and, um, you know, we pick on Google a lot, but, I mean, this is just, the, the company's huge, and they do everything on a huge scale. And here's this compression library, and somebody says, yes, here it solves this problem. And I was kind of making fun of, you know, web fonts and big JavaScript libraries and CSS libraries and all these requests to the server. And uh, Brotly, I'm sorry, I called it Broccoli, but Brotly, (laughs) (laughs) Brotly is a compression algorithm specifically developed um, for web fonts. And I guess it does JavaScript and some other stuff too. But what's funny about this to me is um, it's not the first one that has come out of Google. <laughs> and um, I guess Brotly supersedes another compression algorithm, which precedes another or supersedes another compression algorithm. And it's kind of funny to me. And the the side to this that I think is really funny is um, Google did this so that you know browser to server communication could happen faster and make the web a more enjoyable experience. And uh, out the other side here, this was in 2015, September 2015. Here we are in uh, February of 2016, and Chrome doesn't even fully support this. <laughs> so, I mean, here's an example of somebody who's really focused, and you know they're complaining about the same things I'm complaining about. Hey, web fonts are really slow. And they're saying, how can we make this better? They come up with this new compression algorithm. Works great. Do you know who supports it with their browser? Firefox. Do you know who doesn't support it with their browser? Chrome. And, and these are two products coming from the same company. And you know that's one of those situations where somebody was really focused on one problem, but we don't have enough people with enough overlap to bring those two products together in software development and, and make it work. And um, that's Wait. just one of those things we see in tech. Wait, what do you mean both products are coming from the same company? Uh, yeah, Brotly. Uh, oh, I thought you went Firefox and Chrome. I was like, wait, what? Yeah, no, no, no. I I mean the compression algorithm and the browser. Okay. Yeah, uh, it's kind of funny. <laughs> there there was people even complaining in the comments from a few weeks ago that the 64-bit binary of Chrome beta doesn't even uh, have support for it yet. There's like a flag that you have to flip <laughs> in order to be able to try it, and I guess it isn't isn't in the 64-bit version of Chrome yet. So, yeah. Oh, and oh, the other part of that was Go doesn't support it in the native library either. I mean, they've got HTTP 2.0 and all this kind of stuff. 
Um, but the only way you can do Bratley compression in Go is to use a third-party library. <laughs> so, yeah, I got a kick out of it. So, yeah, Google creates uh, Zopfly to do better compression on JavaScript and CSS and stuff and web fonts, and then they come up with Bratly, and, uh, yeah, they still haven't really brought all those things together between all their products yet. So kind of funny. Huh. It shows you how big open source community is. Yeah. Just like going back to what we were talking about with the like spectrum of of uh, software development, um, I'm just thinking that maybe we are too hard on uh, software developers and companies when we don't know the the full story of why something was made the way it was. Yeah, like, it, it I is. Mean, I don't know why Google would somebody at Google would make that compression algorithm and then like release it and announce it, but then not have any support for it. So, I mean, I don't know. That's maybe there's some patent issues or I, I mean, I have no idea. Yeah, it, it, it is really hard. I mean, I guess it's, it's easy to pick on things looking in on them, but maybe, maybe to, to be completely unbiased about this, maybe it just is a silly oversight that if we told them about, they'd be like, Oh Yeah. Because I know, you know, when I do those types of things, you know, somebody comes along and says, hey, Brandon, you just need a function that returns the pointer instead of the, you know, whatever. And I'm mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah, you know, I need to do that. And sometimes for me, it's just somebody saying, hey, make this simple change and you'll be on the right path. Yeah. So maybe this is a case of we don't know the whole picture and maybe it's a case of it's really that simple that they just are so big that they – the Chrome team isn't in the same country as the Bratley team. <laughs> <laughs> You know, they just don't talk or something. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I guess that segues into something that I wanted to talk about. There was an article on uh, on the interwebs um, that was on the front page of Lobsters in the past week called uh, Rewrite Everything in Rust. And this came about after the um, glibc vulnerability in Get Adder Info. Um, I didn't write this, by the way. This was not Brandon. No. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So it was basically just an article from somebody that I assume writes uh, code in Rust saying that uh, we should rewrite everything in Rust because it's more secure and so that we won't have vulnerabilities in the C code like we had that um, caused a internet meltdown as the media would portray it um, when everyone had to run yum or apt get or whatever the hell the command is this week for updating a Linux machine. And when um, you say everyone, you mean not us because we don't run Linux. <laughs> no, somehow we're still affected by it because the media said so. That's but, right. Uh, but anyway, so there, some people were talking about it in the Lobster's IRC channel. Um, and it just made me think like, yeah, it's easy to just look at terrible C code or, or even decent C code that's been there for decades, but that has this one flaw in it. Um, and say that, oh, we should be, why are we still using this code? We should be rewriting it in a different language that is safer. Mm -hmm. And then I, the first thing I think of is like, well, yeah, well, who's going to actually do all this, you know, writing of code? Cause it's easy just mm -hmm. to point at it and say, we should be doing this, but are you actually going to step up and write this code? Right. Um, and I, I feel like we see that in OpenBSD a lot. People will just complain on the mailing lists and say like, why is this thing the way that it is? Or why does, why is there no support for this hardware or whatever? And it's like, cause nobody wrote the code. Are you going to do it? No, then shut up. Like right. you're not contributing anything. Um, and the other thing is like, even if someone does go through the hassle of writing all this code in a different language, uh, you run into the second system effect where you start, mm -hmm. 
while you're rewriting it, you might say, like somebody would say, oh, why doesn't it have this feature? Let me just add this in while I'm rewriting it. And then so either the second, <clears throat> the rewrite never gets fully rewritten because you just keep, uh, you get scope creep and all that, or you rewrite it and you've introduced a bunch of bugs in the process of rewriting it because you yep. didn't understand why the code was doing something that it was, or you just made an error in translation, or... There was other some other new nuance that you didn't know about in the new tool that, you know, we have tons of experience in with C. Right. Um, so it's just like things like that, 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 that is the reason, I mean, there are a bunch of reasons why we are still using a bunch of libraries and kernels written in C. Um, and there are projects to, to, uh, rewrite these things in new languages, but obviously they haven't caught on yet because no one's using them. Um, and I actually found that there's, there was another post that came up, uh, like a few days after that from someone saying that they're going to try and rewrite the get adder info function in Rust, not actually like all of glibc, but just rewrite it in Rust. And uh, there was no code to be spoken of. They were just saying that they were going to do this. Um, and then that linked me to a um, GitHub repo of somebody or of a bunch of people writing um, the GNU core utils in Rust. And so I went to the page to see like how many things they've actually written. And the to-do list is quite long of, you know, lots of utilities that still need to be rewritten. Um, and I don't want to like, you know, uh, rain on their parade and say that they shouldn't be trying, but it's just like, uh, there's still a lot of work to be done. And so just pointing the finger and saying like, why aren't we doing anything better than C? Um, this is, this is the reason why. Yeah. Well, and, and then you get the same people saying stuff like, why would I write that in Rust when I can write it in C? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and then you could always take the same argument back another step and say, why would I write it in C if I could write it in Assembler? <laughs> so um, Ted Unangst did an article about that. I, I want to say it was Rust too. And he said, uh, this was about the Heartbleed, I think. And he said, somebody came along and said, this would ne- Heartbleed would never happen if we wrote this in Rust. Yeah. And, you know, and he's like, no, that, you can't make that kind of a broad sweeping statement about a language. And, you know, um, he kind of showed how you could do the same thing in Rust and all this kind of stuff. And the language doesn't make it impossible or whatever. It's just the person who writes that code has to be paying attention to the right things all the time. And, Knowing of a certain problem doesn't mean that you're not going to write code that, um, you know, has some bug in it that somebody can exploit later. Like when we were doing um, OWASP training, we knew about the top 10 vulnerabilities. We knew how to spot them. We knew how to fix them. But for whatever reason, um, pardon me, the same people who knew about them were like writing them into their code. Mm -hmm. And I, and I remember this so vividly. It was like in 2012 or 11 or something, it was like the number one vulnerability is SQL injection. Never do it. And you know what? <laughs> the next year, number one vulnerability, SQL injection, and people still do it. And, and so I, made, I was like on a warpath, like auditing people's SQL. Never do this, never do this, never do this. And, um, you know, so even though these people knew about it, they were still writing code that was, you know, with SQL injections in it, yeah. vulnerabilities in it. And I, I worked with a guy and I was like, 
you can't do string con- concatenation on your SQL statements. Are you kidding me? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. He's like, there's no other way we can do the query. And I was like, wait a second. You don't know, and yes, there is a way to do this, build this query with search terms, and not be string concatenating and vulnerable to SQL injection. Mm-hmm. So here was a person who had seen it all before, who had built stuff before, and was still writing code with vulnerabilities. So anyway, regardless of whether the language is going to help you or not, or regardless of whether the tool itself is better at mitigating certain things, your developers who (laughs) are your last line of defense, I suppose, even the ones that know um, will make mistakes and don't care. Some of them, I don't know, maybe this is what it is, but it's really crazy to see all these things. Um, You know, people say, oh, that, you know, well, we know how to prevent that. No, you don't. And you're not going to. And even if you did know, you're still going to make a mistake. So <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like Rust couldn't fix or prevent, you know, buffer overflows or integer overflows or whatever. Um, but it's it's still not going to fix logic problems. I mean, like right. the go-to-fail thing in Apple's um, secure socket uh, library, that was the result of like a copy and paste error or a, or a merge error or whatever it was where there were two uh, go-to lines. Um, like that can happen in any language. So are you going to take out go-to or are you going to take out like, you know, some primitive in the language so that you can't do that one specific thing? Um, I mean, you're going to have, and especially like during a rewrite, you can still introduce logic problems. So even if the library... Uh, doesn't fail you because you overflowed a buffer, you can still have a logic problem where you're returning or you're like interpreting data incorrectly and you would do that in any language. So there are still these bugs um, that would happen in a different language. And I would personally like to see how well the the servo project comes along. And once people are starting to use it to actually like shake it out and see what kind of bugs are still there in a, in a huge code base like that that's still that's running in rust but it's still a lot of code that's doing all kinds of different things um there might be a new class of bugs that are found because of uh something in the rust compiler or you know something like that that uh we just there there's isn't enough experience to know that 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 rust is like the perfect tool so um yeah. pointing to any one of these uh, uh newer languages and saying that they are the answer um, you know, write all the code first and see how it works and then yeah. show everybody and say, okay, we should do this. Uh, just standing on the sidelines and saying, you know, we should rewrite all this stuff in Rust uh, <laughs> doesn't seem to be helping much. No. And and as someone who has personally rewritten um, like core technologies for companies um, and, and I've I've done some foolish things and I've done some great work, but I will say when you take something um, – that works and needs rewritten and you know kind of like the tools uh, uh, you know the technology base underneath it and you rewrite it from scratch using an existing like a technology that you know um, maybe it's easier uh, because you know the technology you know the products and you can kind of come at at a nice happy medium of like no surprises but you never take something like a product that you don't know and a technology that you don't know, and try and rewrite um, some core piece of you know your company's infrastructure uh, using that stuff. Because, like you said, 
you're going to find out all these things about that technology that you didn't know. I mean, they've been running this other tool for seven years and they have, you know, memory leak detectors and they have, um, you know, interrupt storm mitigations and they have all these things that they've uh, found out over using this technology. It's been vetted. It's been matured for a long, long time. And then you're going to bring in a technology that you don't know and you're going to have all these corner cases and surprises that are going to pop up and you're not going to know what to do with them and you're not going to know what you're looking for in this product and, and rewrite. So it's a very, very, uh, you know, interesting thing to do when you mix a new product that you don't really know about it with a new technology because <laughs> you never know what's going to shake out the other side. Yeah. But I will say, having rewritten a lot of like big programs, sometimes the, um, the code base is just, it just needs a rewrite. And sometimes it is easier to just scrap the whole thing and rewrite it in a known technology than it is to try and maintain the behemoth that you have sitting there on the floor. Yeah. One of the things my company has done, um, you know, we, we're pretty agile and flexible in, our, in certain areas of our company. And, and, and that's kind of what happens with the industry that we're in. We have these big behemoths and they say, well, this is going to take us, you know, several million dollars and a lot of years of time and a lot of developers to make these types of changes to accommodate this thing and say and when so we jump in and we say we can accommodate that type of change and we start you know being flexible and we write little pieces of technology here and there um but it's just kind of like it, it it's maybe it's not a fair comparison we're in a little bit different marketplaces but sometimes it's easier to um build a new piece of technology than it is to try and change the inertia of of an existing piece of technology. Mm -hmm. I saw something today, or not today, I saw something this week on Twitter, and uh, Michael Lucas was talking about um, some PAM uh, stuff that he was doing, and he found this um, systemd PAM shared object on his file system. <laughs> and uh, he was horrified by this. And... Uh, there was a whole bunch of joking going back and forth about this, or I thought it was joking. And then somebody said something about Poe's law here because you couldn't really distinguish between what was a system D joke and what was an actual system D quote unquote feature. And I'm starting to be horrified by the whole, you know, system D thing. And, uh, I mean, it's amusing to me because we don't have system D, but, there are machines uh, where I work that, you know, our next place of upgrade is going to involve a system D and I don't want to, I don't want to have to face it. And I'm <laughs> glad that I'm not a system administrator in those shoes because I would, I know what call I would make and company wouldn't be too happy with my call. Yeah. The thing I don't like about system D is like even putting aside the argument of like combining all of that stuff into one giant daemon and whether you should be doing that or not. Um, I don't get this, like, this mentality in Linux where they keep changing everything all the time. Like, I was just saying, the, like, the command to upgrade packages keeps changing, and it seems like every time I have to touch a Linux box, the command is, is different. And mm -hmm. they set up, like, a, they even set up, like, an alias that, like, forwards <laughs> you to the new command. Right. Um, but it's like with the systemd stuff, it's like, oh, let me look at the logs. Let me go into var log. And it's like, oh, there's nothing there. Oh, you have to run, like, system, CTL, you know, some command to 
spit out a binary or like parse a binary log that's that's somewhere else and it's mm. like so why is all of that better like now you can't run all of the old unix commands on <laughs> you know a plain text file like what happened to everything as a file like it's yeah it's pretty weird yeah this is all my fault you know that what system d all this technology nightmare we're in i it's my fault because 15 years ago, I was complaining about a 250 gig tape drive to do a backup. I thought it was horrible. I was like, 250 gigs of stuff on a tape. This is awful. What do, we got to do better than this. And uh, and then this is how it turned out when I complained about what I thought was terrible. <laughs> Somebody went and made it worse. So we can blame you for this? Yeah, sorry. What are you going to do to fix it? Uh, probably nothing. My system admit days are done. Mm. Yeah, I I just can't get over all the complexity. I, I used to think it was really difficult to have like, you know, fifteen machines dump a tar archive to one machine and you know put it on a tape, and I didn't like it because it didn't feel like awesome. And I like what we have now even less. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, um, I just want to close by. Um, Thanking the listeners. We've um, had more feedback from you guys and uh, people asking questions. So thank you for taking the time to um, send us an email and uh, let us know that you appreciate the podcast. Um, thank you for your questions. Um, I, I guess there was a couple this week, you know, talking about the community. And um, really, I can't speak on behalf of the entire community, but um, there's some great, fantastic people in here who I love hanging out with and having dinner with and there's you know there's some things that go on that I wish didn't go on in the community um so I can't really help it except to say that um if you're a good guy or girl and you think the community uh, is rough and abrasive then you can bring your awesome self in here and we'll have more awesome people in the community yeah and um be the change then, that you want to see in the world yeah, that's right. I mean, it's just that easy sometimes. You, you'll find a ton of great people. I mean, there's there's fantastic developers. There's fantastic users. And go to the conferences. You'll see. Um, don't make company decisions based on emotional and, and social interactions. It's it's not the right thing to do. Um, and then also, too, uh, there was another gentleman who emailed us kind of asking about uh, Undeadly and kind of how that uh, seems a little quiet right now. And, you know, Undeadly gets its news from hackathons and big exciting changes and uh unfortunately right now there's kind of neither of uh either of those there's no big hackathons there's no big changes going in because we're right around release time so things are going to be a little quiet it's nothing to fear um this is when lots of work happens like heads down work in preparation for the you know post lock um kind of big changes going in so Keep keep reading Undeadly. Keep um, you know looking for the the changes to happen because uh, there's some good things happening. There's good things happening in all sorts of areas with OpenBSD right now. The networking stack is getting a lot of good attention. PF is getting a lot of um, attention right now. VMM is going through constant work right now. So keep looking for you know exciting changes in virtualization. There's I mean we saw those changes with um. um pledge happen i was trying to remember what we're calling it now um but lots of uh, i think uh, there's a number thrown out about uh, 60 or 70 percent of all the user land tools are pledged now mm -hmm. 
and uh, even some of the ports are starting to get pledged. So lots of good things. Uh, LibreSSL work continues to happen. So yeah, um, Undeadly is not dead. It's uh, it's just kind of the calm before the storm. So anyway, thank you guys so much for taking the time to write in and uh, let us know your thoughts and um, all that kind of stuff. Yep. So if there's anything you'd like to hear us talk about in a future episode, you can reach us on Twitter at GarbageFM, subscribe to our show's RSS feed on our website at Garbage.fm, or find us on iTunes. Uh, And if you do find us in iTunes, uh, write a review or something like that. Apparently it does something, I don't know. It seems like every other podcast I listen to, they tell you to write a review of them on iTunes. (laughs) So there must be some, I don't know, secret money that comes to us if we get reviews. No, I don't know. Uh, so you can find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Brandon, where can people find you? Yeah, look for me on Twitter. I'm at No Mercy Mod with a K N O W, and you can find me um, on uh, Google Plus. Sometimes in the OpenBSD community. Sometimes I'm posting public stuff. Um, but yeah, find us on the web. Uh, I'm on the web at jcs.org, and on Twitter at jcs. And I guess I am also sometimes on Freenode in the Lobsters channel as jcs. Yeah, I'm on free note as well. You can find me. I'll talk your ear off there as well. So be careful what you ask me. 